Well, it's good to gather on Sunday and to be able to do this study of church history with you here in our adult Sunday school. I love early church history, and let me just say that I try very hard to not read myself into the early church fathers, as they're called. Jesus said, don't call anyone your father, so I do have to be careful with that accepted terminology. But when you look at the early church leaders, pastors, servants, whatever is the right biblical word for them, you see that there's a lot of variety within their orthodoxy. And you can see elements of Catholicism in their teaching. You can see elements of the charismatic movement in their teaching. You can see elements of Protestantism in their teaching. And and it's kind of, you know, a lot of stuff in there. And so I try to be fair to all Christian groups and say, well, here's something that sounds very Catholic, or here's something that sounds very charismatic, or here's something that sounds very evangelical. But we have to recognize that they were an infant church. They were not a fully developed church. They hadn't had the centuries that we have had to be able to be challenged on the teaching of the Word of God and to refine our understanding of the theology and Scripture. And so hopefully we've come to the point where we can take what is great from the early church fathers, reject what were some of the tendencies that ended up producing bad results, And that's part of the blessing of having history, is that you can see, well, how did this idea play out? What were the long-term fruits of the change from a group of elders to a monarchical bishop? And we see that that had some very bad results in church history. And then we go back and look at the Bible more closely, and we see, well, yeah, the Bible doesn't present a monarchical bishop-type form of church government. And so if they would have just stuck with that primitive early church government form, then they would have been spared many of the problems that arose later in church. That's just one example. But as we go through these documents, we try to pull out all of the interesting doctrinal elements that are still debated and discussed in the church, and we can see that these were issues even in the earliest times. So last week, we were looking into the last of the apologists that we'll be studying in this early church history period, and that was Justin Martyr. And Justin was an excellent apologist, and I very much enjoy his writings and his approach to apologetics. And one of the things I really liked about Justin's approach to apologetics was that he focused heavily on the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. And I think the church needs to get back to that. That's a very New Testament way of defending the faith, is to look at the evidence of the fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament prophets into the life of Jesus so many prophecies that are there that are so compelling that show us that the Bible is a book that comes from God and that there is nothing in the world that is like it. So Justin was excellent on that. And Justin also was very good in his apology of making a distinction between those who were the true teachers of Christianity and those who were called Christians but who really had a different religion. And that is something that the early church was very good at. The early church wasn't always good at policing good doctrine within the Catholic church. And when I say Catholic, I mean universal church. And and you've got to go back to first century understanding of Catholic versus 16th century version of Catholic. But they did a pretty good job of distinguishing between the heretics, which is what we're going to be looking at today, as you see, and the true church. But within the church, they didn't do a great job of discerning some of the doctrinal disagreements. Within the church, a lot of seeds of bad teaching that weren't necessarily heretical, but that developed into some bad theology and hurt the church over time. That's kind of the weakness of the early church. But Justin and others did a great job of defending the true church, the apostolic church, let's use that word, against the heretics. And we saw just a taste of that in Justin Martyr's first apology. That's where we spent most of our time looking into Justin. We have a number of Justin's works, but last week we really just focused on his first apology for our purposes. And we made passing reference, I believe, last week to the chapter where he contrasts the true Christians from the false Christians. And here I want to introduce this week's lesson on the heretics by piggybacking off of Justin's discussion of the magicians and the heretics in his first apology from last week. So it's a connection between last week and this week. But before we do that, it's good for us to start off with a word of prayer. So bow your heads with me and we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time. 
Father, I thank you for each one of the saints that you've gathered here in this Sunday school hour to look into the writings of the early church pastors and teachers, to be able to learn how to defend our faith, not only from the persecutors of the church, but also from those who were trying to steal away the sheep with false teaching and were proclaiming a different Christ and a different gospel. Lord, we pray that as we learn from the example of Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, that we would be bold in our day to be able to point out the difference between genuine Christianity and false religions that call themselves Christianity. Lord, I pray that you would give this spirit not only to us here this morning, but that you would increase this among all the churches. God, we need elders and pastors and authors to have courage to stand up and to be able to denounce false religions like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness as not Christian because of the heresies that are taught in those churches. And we need people who are discerning to be able to recognize even bad doctrinal trends within believing churches, within orthodox churches, so that the church might maintain good health for many years to come and grow stronger and stronger and bear much good fruit in your sight. Lord, protect us from worldliness, protect us from the infiltration of Satan in subtle ways and overt ways. We pray for our good and for your glory. Amen. All right, so we talked about how there's two ways that Satan weakens the church. There's two ways that he attacks it. He'll attack it with persecution, which is also known as intimidation. We use the letter I to help us remember the two ways. So the first one is intimidation. He tries to persecute the church, and through that intimidation, he causes Christians to give up the faith or to change what they believe to avoid persecution. But then the other way that Satan comes after the church is through infiltration. So that people who pretend to be friends of the church, people who say, hey, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, I learned some amazing things about Christianity that I'd love to share with you that I think is really going to help you in your Christian life, and they then introduce destructive doctrines that deny the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the heresies. So the intimidation is the overt attack from the outside where they're not pretending to be your friends and they're like, we hate you Christians and we're going to persecute you Christians. But then the infiltration are those who pretend to be shepherds of the flock and they say, hey, I'm a, I'm a Bible teacher and, and I'm here, I want to do a Bible study with you and, and we're from the Watchtower organization and we love the Bible and, or we're from the Latter-day Saints and, and you know, we just love Jesus and we want to talk about the Book of Mormon with you. And they try to draw away the saints after them. So the church needs to have courage against the persecutors that we have to be willing to suffer for Jesus Christ if we're going to remain strong against Satan's attack. And we have to have courage to be able to confront the false teachers and to point them out as false teachers. Now, if you look around at most evangelical churches today, do you see that? Do you see courage, willingness to suffer for Jesus Christ? And do you see courage, willing to confront false teachers and to point out heretics? I don't. Maybe, maybe you do, but I see it as tremendously lacking. And so I have a rather pessimistic view of the future of the evangelical movement, the evangelical churches, because the two ways that Satan comes after the church, we're not ready for. And he's doing a lot of damage by the cowardice of the church against persecution and the cowardice against false teachers. We need courageous leaders like Justin to defend the church on both fronts. Now, Justin did write a book against the heretics, We've lost that. We don't have Justin's book against the heretics, but we do have Irenaeus' book against the heretics. So we're going to introduce the subject with Justin's reference to the heretics here in his first apology, and then we'll take a deeper dive probably next week in Irenaeus to really learn what the early church heresies were like. Very fascinating subject. So in chapter 26 of Justin Martyr's first apology, let me read for you a couple of paragraphs here. And remember, there's 68 chapters, so 26 is getting close to halfway through the book. And remember that Justin wrote around 150 A.D., and so this is the middle of the second century. So we've had 100 years or more for heretics to grow and to start their movements and start their churches. It gives you some idea of the timeline of what we're talking about. And so Justin is writing to the Senate, he's writing to the emperor, defending Christians, and he wants to make sure that the Senate and the emperor are able to understand that not every movement that calls itself Christian is representative of the larger group of apostolic Christianity. So this is what he says. Thirdly, because after Christ's ascension into heaven, the devils put forward certain men who said that they themselves were gods, 
And they were not only not persecuted by you, but they were even deemed worthy of honors. All right, so here's these Christians, these heretics, and strangely, the Romans don't persecute the heretics. They only persecute the true Christians. Pretty interesting. This is a, a demonstration of proof of the verifiability of Jesus' words because Jesus promised us that the world would persecute us. And when you see the world persecuting Christians with a total double standard that they don't apply to other groups, and it's like, oh yeah, I guess Jesus was a true prophet because this is exactly what he said would happen. So we see the fulfillment of prophecy even in the persecution of the church. So don't be surprised, right? The Romans did it, and our, our current government is not going to be very different. It says this, There was a Samaritan named Simon, a native of the village called Gitto, who in the reign of Claudius Caesar and in your royal city of Rome did mighty acts of magic by virtue of the art of the devils operating in him. He was considered a god, and as a god was honored by you with a statue. Which statue was erected on the river Tiber between the two bridges and bore this inscription in the language of Rome, Latin, Simone Deo Sancto which means to Simon, the holy God. And almost all of the Samaritans, and a few even of other nations, worship him and acknowledge him as the first God. And a woman, Helena, who went about with him at that time and had formerly been a prostitute, they say that she is the first idea generated by that God. And a man, Meander, also a Samaritan of the town of Caparatea, a disciple of Simon, and inspired by the devils, we know to have deceived many while he was in Antioch by his magical arts. He persuaded those who adhered to him that they should never die. And even now there are some living who hold this opinion of his. And there is Marcion, a man of Pontus, who is even at this day alive and teaching his disciples to believe in some other god greater than the creator. And he, by the aid of the devils, has caused many of every nation to speak blasphemies and to deny that God is the maker of this universe and to assert that some other being greater than he has done greater works. All who take their opinions from these men are, as we before said, called Christians, just as also those who do not agree with the philosophers in their doctrines have yet in common with them the name of philosophers given to them. And whether they perpetrate those fabulous and shameful deeds, the upsetting of the lamp, promiscuous intercourse, and eating human flesh, we don't know. But we do know that they are neither persecuted nor put to death by you, at least on account of their opinions. But I have a treatise against all the heresies that have existed already composed, which, if you wish to read it, I will give it you. All right, so he's written a long treatise against the heresies, he offers to give it to the emperor and the senate if they would like to read it, but we don't have it. We lost it, although it's probably very similar to what we have in, in Irenaeus. Now, he mentions a, a number of different magicians here who called themselves Christians, but who had a very different doctrine find in the New Testament. And you caught some of that just on my first reading of the paragraph, how vastly different the doctrine of Simon Meander and Marcion were from the apostles and those who were taught by the apostles. Now, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, okay? Acts chapter 8, please. Always great when you can study church history and tie it in with the New Testament. That's easier when you're just a hundred years after these events. Acts chapter 8, yes. So here you've got Philip, the evangelist, and he's going and proclaiming the gospel in Samaria. And that starts in verse 4. There's a persecution in Jerusalem. The saints are scattered. And then out of all the saints going everywhere preaching the word, Luke chooses to focus on Philip, where he went to a city of Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. Pick it up in verse 6. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So God is authenticating the word of the apostles 
through miraculous signs and wonders. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us, what God did in the early days of the church, the foundation of the church, the apostles and prophets, that when this new teaching is coming into the word, this new revelation from God, he authenticates it with miracles. And so we've got the lame being healed, paralyzed, are able to walk, unclean spirits being cast out. But notice verse 9. There was a man named Simon. Ah, here we have Simon, the same one that Justin Martyr referenced in his paragraph. This is that Simon in Samaria, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And then it goes on with the preaching in the other villages of the Samaritans and Philip meeting the Ethiopian eunuch. So that's the last we hear about Simon in the Bible. But then we find out in church history, the rest of the story, that he did not repent, but in fact he became a false teacher who called himself the manifestation of God on the earth. So he said, well, these Christians, they're you know, amazing people and starting this amazing movement, and he's kind of jealous of their success. And so he tries to copy them with his own magic and continue on saying, okay, they got their miracles, but I got my miracles, and, and they talk about Jesus, but I want you to know that I am the power of God that's come into the world, and, and my consort, Helena, that she's the first idea that was generated. Now, that's interesting that you get a lot of this. In the religions of that day that really had roots in the Greek philosophy, going back to Plato's ideas and some of the things that people developed religious ideas out of Plato's philosophy, there was a lot of speculation about the spiritual world. Those of you that have studied some philosophy with me, you know that Plato, he really focused on the upper world, the celestial world, whereas Aristotle, he focused more on the physical world. And so Plato was very interested in the world of ideas, and he thought that the spiritual world, the world of ideas, was more real than the physical world. And so what Plato's followers did was they came up with a lot of speculation about how the world came to be created, and that there's these spiritual beings in this upper world, this, this heavenly world, and that there's a whole chain of emanations. So the, the Platonic and Neoplatonic philosophers came up with this idea that, that there's this ultimate reality called the pleroma, the fullness, the, the, the everything, the type of idea. And then from the pleroma emanate other beings, uh, spiritual beings who are not physical, and that you have all kinds of emanations in different systems. And so Different schools of Platonic thought would, would give different names to different things in, in their system. And so this idea that everything comes out of thought uh, is, is very prominent in these Neoplatonic religions. So when Justin tells us that Simon declared himself to be the holy God and that his consort was the first idea generated by the holy God. This is all coming from that milieu of Neoplatonic philosophy that was throughout the Greco-Roman world and here, of course, in Samaria. 
mixing together with the Samaritan religion, mixing together with this new Christian thing that's coming in. And so Simon just takes it all together to build his own religion around himself. And what we learn from the early church fathers who fought against the heretics is that this was the basic pattern then that all the heretics that were known as Gnostics undertook. Raise your hand if you've heard of Gnosticism. Have you ever heard of Gnosticism? So the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. And that's the word from which we get Gnosticism. Now Gnosticism is a catch-all term to describe a whole bunch of different religions that all came from basically the same ideas. It's kind of like if you go over to India and you study Hinduism. Well, Hinduism is a catch-all word that describes many different religions and philosophies that all have a common source, a common base in the culture of the Indus River Valley going all the way back to post-flood times, ancient times. And there's a lot of variety in their philosophy and in their religion, but it all still has a similar source and idea. That's the way it is with Gnosticism. So Gnosticism has roots in a lot of different religions. It's kind of an amalgamation of different things. And so now there's this Christian brand of this Gnostic thought or this Neoplatonic thought that centers in these magicians who try to imitate the miracles of the apostles in order to draw away the disciples and say, no, we're the true ones that you need to listen to and the apostles have gotten the message wrong. So they're a rival church. That is basically what they set up. And Simon is kind of the first to bring all this together and to set a pattern for other people that then say, oh yeah, I could do that too. I can learn the magic and I can come up with a system that is very similar but it's a little bit different and can call it my own. And then you've got a whole series of these Gnostic heretics in the early church. So that gives you some introduction to the heresies that the early church confronted. And because of the Neoplatonic influence in them, they have a lot of wrong ideas about God and about Christ. And let me add this also to really help you understand the Christian Gnostic movement. They were also very anti-Jewish. Right? They were anti-Old Testament. They were anti-Jewish. They saw how the gospel was really taking a hold in Greek circles, uh, Roman circles, Gentile circles. And so they're like, well, forget the Jews. You know, all these Greeks and Romans and Gentiles, they hate the Jews. So we can take a version of Christianity that is anti-Jewish and we can really be successful with this because that's really speaking to people's felt needs. That, you know, the Gentiles are really the people that God loves and those Jews, they were led astray by the wrong God who is not the true highest God because they've got all these different gods, all these different emanations, all these different spirits. And so they think that a false spirit is the one who created the world. So Gnosticism, it had roots in many different religions, Neoplatonism being a, a key element. It was very anti-Semitic, very anti-Old Testament. And another key to understanding these early church heretics and their Gnosticism is to recognize that they viewed the physical world as being either unimportant or downright evil. Because of the Neoplatonic philosophy, they thought that the spiritual world, the world of ideas, was real and genuine and good, and that the physical world was ephemeral and insignificant, or maybe even downright evil. And you could go two different ways with that kind of philosophy. If you think that the world of ideas is all that matters, and the physical world either doesn't matter or is evil, there's two different ways you can go with that. You can either become extremely ascetic, Ascetic means that you separate yourself from everything that is fleshly, every carnal desire, sexual immorality, money and greed, promotion, all that worldliness. You can become extremely ascetic and say, we're not going to get married, we're going to be celibate, we're not going to eat any foods, we're going to torture our body so that we can gain this enlightenment, and the physical world is evil, so we don't have anything to do with that. That's asceticism. Or you can go the other way and say, well, since the physical world doesn't really matter and all that matters is the world of ideas and the mind, you can do whatever you want with your body because it doesn't touch your spirit. It doesn't defile your soul. My heart is clean because I have this knowledge about the true God and the world as it really exists. And so if I'm involved with all kinds of sexual immorality and if I'm a glutton and if I'm cheating and lying and doing all these evil things, it doesn't matter because my spirit is pure. And so this was the two different forms of Gnosticism that you had. And a lot of the early Gnostics, like Simon and Meander, if I'm remembering, it's hard to remember them all, Valentinus, as one that we'll talk about when we get to Irenaeus, they took not the ascetic route, they took the licentious route. And they said, you know, 
all you need to know is our mysteries about who really created the world and who is really God's son and the Savior that's sent into the world. And as long as you know these things, then you can do whatever you want with your body, and it's just fine. And this kind of teaching you already see in the latter period of the New Testament, that when Jesus Christ is writing to the seven churches, he talks about how the church at Ephesus is good because it hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, the New Testament doesn't really tell us anything about the Nicolaitans. It just refers to them in that verse. And so we're left wondering, well, what are the deeds of the Nicolaitans that they hate? Well, thankfully, Irenaeus and others write about the Nicolaitans, and they make it clear that the Nicolaitans were this kind of Gnostic sect. And you might call it proto-Gnosticism because it's just very early in the formation of this Christian amalgamation of these secular ideas, these Platonic ideas together with Christianity. And so the, the Nicolaitans, they took that approach that, well, as long as you believe in God and as long as you accept Jesus into your life, it doesn't matter if you commit adultery. It doesn't matter if you go to the idol festivals and feasts and party it up with the pagans with their idols. It doesn't matter if you get drunk and, and all of that. All that matters is, is that you know the truth. So that was the Nicolaitans, and so they led people into all kinds of immorality, like Jezebel. Remember how God rebuked Jezebel for teaching his servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols? That's that Gnosticism, that proto-Gnosticism getting into the church, saying that the physical world doesn't matter, you can do whatever you want with your body, as long as you know the truth, the deep things of Satan, as Jezebel put it. So these ideas were already causing havoc in the church, even before the second century. But they blossom into full-grown churches and movements in the centuries that are following. And the most important of these Gnostic movements, although it's barely into Gnosticism, it's, it's kind of Gnosticism light. And that's why it becomes so powerful. That's why it becomes such a strong rival to true Christianity, is it's not as crazy as these other movements and saying, you know, you can sin all you want, and as long as you believe what we tell you, you're fine. But Marcion, he took the other approach. So I told you, Gnosticism could go two ways. They could go licentiousness, which the Bible clearly condemns, or they could go into asceticism, which the Bible also condemns, but not quite as much and not quite as strongly and clearly. And so Marcion, he was very smart, and he recognized that a lot of Christians hate the Jews. And so I can pick up on this anti-Jewish thing and build my religion around that. And there's a lot of this Neoplatonic thought that's very important in, in the culture. And so I'll, I'll pull in some of that, but I won't go whole hog on it. Instead, I'll just use the Neoplatonic thought to show why the God who wrote the Old Testament is the God who created the world, but he's not the true God. He's this lesser God who is an emanation from the Pleroma, the true God. And that lesser God created the physical world. And, and that's why there's so much evil and suffering in the world is because this lesser God didn't really know what he was doing because he's not the Pleroma. And because of his ignorance and because of his limitedness, he created this terrible world that we live in. And we're all trying to escape the world through the knowledge of the Savior. And that we're going to not be licentious, but we're going to be ascetic. And so we're not going to deny Christ. The licentious people, they'd say, you know, when they accuse you of being a Christian, because that's what we call ourselves, and they bring you in and say, are you a Christian? You can say, no, I'm not a Christian, and you can lie about it, because it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. In your spirit, you know you're a Christian. It doesn't matter if you confess Christ. So they just got out of all persecution just by denying that they were Christians. But these Marcionites, they said, no, you cannot deny that you are a Christian that when you are asked if you're a Christian, you have to say yes. And there were a lot of Marcionite martyrs. I don't want to say just as many, but there was a lot of Marcionite martyrs. And that made people really take their movement seriously. They're like, look at that. These guys are willing to die for their faith, just like the Christians are willing to die for their faith. Maybe they are the true church. And the Marcionites also were very moral. They went way beyond the New Testament on celibacy and, and all of that type of thing. And so he set up a church that became a rival to the early church that lasted for centuries. A lot of these other groups were kind of centered on an individual, and after he died, someone else would start a group, and they never really gained a lot of traction. It was just a whole bunch of people in this movement with their own little thing. But Marcion, he set up a system where he had his own bishops, he had his own churches. They were still, the early church was still battling Marcionism in the 6th century. All right? So this lasts for hundreds of years. It's, it's interesting, and that's why we're going to focus more on Marcion than focusing on some of these other early church heretics. But before we move on to looking at Marcion, I want to examine a few more things of the details of what Justin Martyr wrote against the heretics here in chapter 26. 
of his first apology. So after talking about the magician Simon, he talks about Meander. And Meander's also Samaritan. He was a disciple of Simon, according to Justin. And I tend to take the words of Justin and the words of Irenaeus as good testimony. Here's a difference between what you'll find in a class like this on church history versus a class that you would take at the university on church history. The university is hostile towards apostolic Christianity. All right? They don't like apostolic Christianity, and so they have a bias towards the heretics. They love to promote, the, hey, look, there were these other churches and other ideas about Christianity from the earliest times, going back all the way to the first century with the Nicolaitans and all this. How do we know which one was really the truth about Jesus? And they want to kind of create as much doubt about apostolic doctrine that we have in the New Testament as possible. So they want to raise the credibility of these other groups even beyond what is rational or provable because of their internal bias. And so they're also biased against Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Hippolytus and other early writers who wrote against the heretics, and they tend to discount wherever they can the historical reliability of their testimony, whereas I, who think that these guys were right, I have a bias in their favor. I I tend to think whatever they say is probably pretty accurate because I think they've got the correct worldview. So my worldview is very similar to their worldview, so I assume, more often than not, that their interpretation of the Gnostics is correct. Whereas the world has a different worldview, and even though it's different from the Gnostics and they have almost nothing in common with the Gnostics, just the fact that they have a common enemy, biblical Christianity, that causes them to have a bias against the reliability of these early church fathers writing on these subjects. Now, for the longest time, we didn't know anything about the Gnostics from their own writings because we don't have any books that Valentinus wrote or we don't have any books that Marcion wrote that all of these books were eventually destroyed when the Catholic Church, the universal church, as we call it, stamped out the heretics because it was the official church of the Roman Empire and it gained political power and they were able to get rid of freedom of speech. They burned all those books and we don't have them. And that causes the university people to be even more like, ooh, look, these banned books that the church got rid of and how fascinating. And they always rooting for the underdog because they always think that whoever has the political power is using it to persecute the the weak and and that their Marxist worldview makes them even more interested in the Gnostics because the Christians end up finally using their political power to damp it out. But all that aside, let's look at a couple other things here. Thanks for sticking with me on my rabbit trails. A couple other things here in Justin's paragraph. He says this, speaking about the aid of the devils and how they had the demonic magic that was working And Marcion, what were some of his views? He said he taught his disciples, and he's still doing this, he's still alive at this day when Justin is writing this, teaching his disciples to believe in some other God greater than the Creator. So this is part of that Neoplatonic thought, part of that Gnosticism, that the true God was this unknown God who hadn't revealed himself, but that the God that the Jews believed in was this lesser God who didn't understand everything and who either was evil or was just incapable. And so then this caused them to have all different kinds of strange views about Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, and we'll talk more about that as we go along. And then it says, they are called Christians, just like there's a lot of different groups of people who are called philosophers, even though they have very little in common in what they actually teach. So there's this big group called philosophers, and there's this big group called Christians. That doesn't mean they're teaching the same thing. And that's going to become very clear as we get into Irenaeus. Now, when he talks about the shameful deeds, the fabulous and shameful deeds that Christians were accused of, Christians were accused of upsetting the lamp. What is upsetting the lamp? Well, if you turn over a lamp, you knock it over, what's going to happen? Fire, right? So Christians were accused of starting fires. Who was the first Roman emperor to accuse the Christians of starting a fire? Nero, right? So Nero accused the Christians of starting the fire that burned down Rome. And so this was not just a one-time thing. Uh, Christians were looked at as people who were always starting fires. And whenever a fire would break out in a city, they'd be like, oh yeah, remember the Christians burned Rome. Nero told us so. And so I bet the Christians started this one too. Let's get the Christians. 
So Satan used this over and over again against the Christians that they intentionally burned down cities because, oh, it only makes sense, you know. They talk about how God's going to judge the world, the great conflagration. They're always preaching about how we're sinners and idolaters. And, and I bet they really are burning our cities and towns down. So Satan was using this in the hearts of the unbelievers to attack the Christians and stir up persecution. And here Justin is saying, well, maybe, you know, if anyone is starting these fires, it's not us but it's these other guys who call themselves Christians. He says, I don't know, but maybe. And as far as promiscuous intercourse goes, that's something that Christians were accused of. Christians were accused of incest because they used the terminology brother and sister to refer to each other. And so you got a husband and wife comes, and he introduces them, you know, this is sister so-and-so. They'd be like, uh, you married your sister? And so there was this misunderstanding along those lines because of the, the language of the brotherhood. And here, the promiscuous intercourse was practiced among many of the Gnostic sects, starting with like the Nicolaitans and Jezebel, and then moving into guys like Simon and Meander and Valentinus. And then the third one, the eating of human flesh, that was also a, a common misunderstanding of the Christians. They thought, well, because you guys have these love feasts where you're eating the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that you guys are eating human flesh. You guys are cannibals. And here, Justin's saying, you know, we don't eat human flesh and drink human blood. This is just a metaphor. But maybe some of these other cults, maybe some of these sects, maybe some of these heretics, maybe they are doing it. And then maybe people will just accuse us of doing it because these guys call themselves Christians. So here you see an insight into some of the misunderstanding of Christianity and how Justin is trying to separate the true Christians from the false so yeah, I think that's a great introduction there in Justin's work to the heretics. And before we leave Justin, I do have one other thing I wanted to show you. So I have a handout. And this is from a different book that Justin wrote. But as I started off this morning, here changing gears a little bit, I started off this morning telling you that I like to take a look at all of the doctrines that are debated in our time and go back and, and look at important passages in the early church writers to get some insight into what the first and second century church believed about some of these issues that divide the church today. And one of the issues that even the evangelical church is very divided on is the issue of premillennialism. And here, notice that what I handed you, at least one side of it, not the, uh, the side that has the Apostles' Creed, but the side that starts with the opinion of Justin with regard to the reign of a thousand years, several Catholics, and Catholic here again in the, the early church sense, the universal church, the apostolic church, the opinion of Justin with regard to the reign of a thousand years. So what does Justin believe about premillennialism or postmillennialism or amillennialism? Isn't that an interesting subject? So this is a different writing, as I said, and you see that the paragraph starts off with a quote from Trifo, and this writing is called the dialogue with Trifo. So remember, the Gnostics, they taught that the Jews were misled by a lesser God and that their scriptures were false and you could reject them. We'll talk about more about what Marcion does with that. But that the apostolic church, they, like Justin, taught that all of the prophecies of the Old Testament were the word of God and that Jesus Christ fulfilled those promises. And so here Trifo is asking Justin, as they have a conversation from a Jewish man to a Christian, what do you Christians really believe about the Old Testament and its promises of a earthly kingdom for the Jewish people? All right, so this is what a Jewish person would want to know. Do you guys believe in the promises of the Old Testament or do you think that the Old Testament was this group of lies from this lesser God like Marcion is teaching? So here's what Justin writes. He's recording an actual conversation he had. Now, how well he remembered everything, whether he's embellishing, you know, all that. We'll give him some room to expand upon what the actual conversation was a little bit here. But it gets to the very heart, though, of what they were talking about. So let's read that together. You follow along, I'll read it out loud. Trifo to this replied, I remarked to you, sir, that you are very anxious to be safe in all respects, since you cling to the scriptures. But tell me, do you really admit that this place, Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt? And do you expect your people to be gathered together and made joyful with Christ and the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets? both the men of our nation and other proselytes who joined them before your Christ came? 
Or have you given way and admitted this in order to have the appearance of worsting us in the controversies? He's saying, do you really believe this or are you just saying you believe it for a sake of advantage in our debate here? And so here's what Justin says. I am not so miserable a fellow, Trifo, as to say one thing and think another. Not like these Gnostics. You know, they say it's okay to lie because the physical world doesn't matter. It's what you believe in your heart. That's all that matters. But Justin says, I'm not like that. I, I'm not so miserable a fellow as to say one thing and think another. I admitted to you formerly that I and many others are of this opinion and believe that such will take place as you assuredly are aware. But on the other hand, I signify to you that many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. Moreover, I pointed out to you that some who are called Christians but are godless, impious heretics teach doctrines that are in every way blasphemous, atheistical, and foolish. But that you may know that I do not say this before you alone, I shall draw up a statement, so far as I can, of all the arguments which have passed between us. That's what this is. This is his statement of all the discussion, the debate that he had with Trifo, in which I shall record myself as admitting the very same things which I admit to you. For I choose to follow not men or men's doctrines, but God and the doctrines delivered by him. For if you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but who do not admit this truth, and venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, who say there is no resurrection of the dead. Why would there be a physical resurrection if the physical world is evil and is created by this lesser God, right? The whole point is to escape from the physical world into the spiritual world, the noumenal world. The world is the mind. So that's why the resurrection was denied. Remember when Paul was preaching the resurrection at Athens and they sneered because he believed in a physical bodily resurrection? That doctrine was hated by the Greeks especially those who were very platonic in their thinking. So the doctrine of the physical resurrection was very anti-Greek philosophy, very anti-Plato. But he says, Justin says, I believe there is a resurrection of the dead and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven. Do not imagine that they are Christians, even as one, if he would rightly consider it, would not admit that the Sadducees or similar sect of Genist, Mariste, Galileans, Hellenists, Pharisees, Baptists, are Jews. Do not hear me impatiently when I tell you what I think, but are only called Jews and children of Abraham, worshiping God with the lips, as God himself declared, but the heart was far from him. But I and others who are right-minded Christians, I've got this highlighted on mine, okay, I like this sentence. I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will then be built, adorned, and enlarged, the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare. Now I highlight this because it has been sounded abroad among amillennial and postmillennial evangelicals that the early church was not dispensational and not premillennial, and that premillennialism is this new thing that has come on the scene since Darby published his study Bible. That's historically inaccurate. That if we go back to some of the earliest church writings where they are specifically addressing the question of is there going to be a thousand year reign after the return of Christ on this earth where the resurrected are going to be, Justin says, I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be this thousand years of reign in Jerusalem. So when Justin read in Revelation that there's going to be a thousand years, he thought literal thousand years. And he's not the only one. He says, I and others. Now, I want to be fair to the amillennialists and postmillennialists that he does point out that not everyone agrees that there are those who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians who think otherwise. So this was a debated issue. This was an issue where there was some diversity of opinion in the second century church, just as there is diversity of opinion in the 21st century church. Isn't that interesting? The more things change, the more they stay the same. But on this point, I'm in agreement with Justin, and I want to also uh, read what he says there in the following chapter, chapter 81, where he's going to prove this from Isaiah and the Revelation, the Apocalypse is John's Revelation. All right? So he continues. For Isaiah spoke thus concerning this space of a thousand years, 
There shall be the new heaven and the new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come into their heart, but they shall find joy and gladness in it, which things I create. For behold, I make Jerusalem a rejoicing and my people a joy, and I shall rejoice over Jerusalem and be glad over my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, or the voice of crying. And there shall be no more there a person of immature years, or an old man who shall not fulfill his days. For the young man shall be a hundred years old, but the sinner who dies a hundred years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses, and shall themselves inhabit them, and they shall plant vines, and they shall eat the produce of them and drink the wine. They shall not build and others inhabit. They shall not plant and others eat. For according to the days of the tree of life shall be the days of my people. The works of their toil shall abound. Mine elect shall not toil fruitlessly or beget children to be cursed. For they shall be a seed righteous and blessed by the Lord and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will hear. While they are still speaking, I shall say, what is it? Then shall the wolves and the lambs feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent shall eat earth as bread. They shall not hurt or maltreat each other on the holy mountain, saith the Lord. Now, we have understood that the expression used among these words, according to the day of the tree of life, shall be the days of my people, the works of their toil shall abound, obscurely predicts a thousand years. For as Adam was told in that day that if he ate of the tree, he would die, we know that he did not complete the thousand years. We have perceived, moreover, that the expression, the day of the Lord is as a thousand, is as a thousand years, is connected with this subject. Now here his Bible interpretation is a little faulty. Okay, so he doesn't use <laughs> the right argument here, but he gets to the right point. And then I like the next point better where he says, and I've got this highlighted, further, there was a certain man with us whose name was John one of the apostles of Christ, who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him that those who believed in our Christ would dwell a thousand years in Jerusalem and that thereafter the general and in short the eternal resurrection and judgment of all men would likewise take place, just as our Lord also said. They shall neither marry nor be given in marriage, but shall be equal to the angels, the children of the God of the resurrection. So, I appreciate Justin's premillennial position. It doesn't mean that he was exactly a dispensationalist in all points. There's going to be varieties of premillennialism. This is called historic premillennialism, is what the early church fathers believed in. But even among them, there's going to be some diversity of opinions on the details. Well, we've got a few minutes left, and what I want to do, since we don't have time to start on Irenaeus, and I've already talked some at length on Gnosticism, let's take a look at the other side of the handout that I gave you on the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is a fascinating early church creed. It has changed in some respects over time. There's been certain phrases that have been added or certain things that have been modified. And it's an interesting study that the elders did not too long ago when we were going through the systematic theology to see different dates of the Apostles' Creed and what was included at it at different dates. But I've given you the 1662 Book of Common Prayer version as well as the Lutheran version down below it. And what you see there at the top is that the Apostles' Creed, sometimes called the symbol of the apostles, is that early statement of Christian belief, a creed or a symbol. Symbol was used for a creed. Because of its early origin, it does not address some Christological issues defined in the later Nicene and other Christian creeds. It thus says nothing explicitly about the divinity of either Jesus or of the Holy Spirit. This makes it acceptable to many Arians and Unitarians. Nor does it address many other theological questions that became objects of dispute centuries later. So creeds are responses to heresies. And the early church heresies were of this Gnostic quality. And the Gnostics, they did not deny that Jesus was divine, that he was God. What they often denied was that he was flesh. Okay? Because what did they believe? They believed that the physical world was either unimportant or evil, and that if Jesus is truly divine, he didn't come and actually participate in our physicality, our fleshliness, because that would be too far of lowering of the divine pleroma to become physical flesh because of their low view of creation. And so the early creed focuses on the humanity, the fleshliness of Jesus Christ to combat these early church heresies. 
So you can see what the heresies were by what is emphasized in the creed of each time period. The creeds are the response to the heresies. And that's why our church is currently looking at expanding our doctrinal statement because there's new heresies that are becoming prominent and dangerous in the church. And so we have to have a response and say, well, here's what the Bible says about transgenderism. Now, a hundred years ago, was transgenderism a big issue in the Christian church? No, that's why it's not in the creeds from a hundred years ago. Now it is an issue. So now we say, well, here's what the Bible teaches on this issue. That's the way it is with all the creeds, all the statements of faith. And so the, the early Apostles' Creed deals with the errors of that time period. And so with that in mind and everything that we've just said in the last 55 minutes, now we're going to read the Apostles' Creed and you're going to be like, oh, that's why they said that. That's why they put that in there. Okay? It says this in the Book of Common Prayer. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Boom! Gnosticism, boom! Shot, dead, right there. God the Father, he is the one who is the maker of not only the heavens, but the earth. And no Gnostic would be able to say that. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost. All right? So some of the Gnostics, they taught that Christ was just an ordinary person. There's a, there's a lot of diversity in their Christology. Okay? But some of the Gnostics believed that Christ was just an ordinary person. He was a good person, a very virtuous person. And that's why God chose Jesus of Nazareth to receive the Christ Spirit. And so the Christ Spirit came down upon him at his baptism. So Christ didn't actually become flesh, but the Spirit of Christ came upon this person who was flesh. And the Apostles' Creed says, uh-uh, uh-uh. No, Jesus Christ, not Jesus who received the Christ Spirit, Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, and he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Some of the Gnostics said, well, the Christ didn't suffer. And so what I think Valentinus taught was that Christ, he switched places with the man who carried his cross. What was the name of the guy who carried his cross? Simon, right? Simon the Cyrene, was it? And so when they got to the place where Jesus was crucified, he did his magic trick, you know, like the magicians, his magic trick to make himself look like Simon, to make Simon look like himself. And so Simon was the one who got crucified, and they all thought they were crucifying Jesus, and Jesus was standing over in the corner going... So this was the heresy that was so foolish and so evil that mocking Jesus as if he's some magician, no, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was dead. He was buried. Now the phrase, he descended into hell, is not in the earliest versions of the creed, and I prefer to take it out if I was going to use the Apostles' Creed as part of our liturgy. It's confusing. It doesn't need to be there. We could talk about that more in detail, but we're going to skip it. The third day he rose again from the dead, That's the next important point here. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So judgment day is coming. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, and I like the spelling of Catholic there to differentiate it from the Roman Catholic Church. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, key point there, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So the Apostles' Creed largely formed to combat the heresies of the Gnostics. Marcion, Simon, the magician, Meander, Valentinus, and many, many others whose heresies spread along. And Marcion is the one we're going to focus on next week because he becomes the biggest threat that Christianity has probably ever had to deal with, except for maybe the Roman Catholic Church or or something along those lines. But uh, the early church, the biggest threat they had was Marcion. And so we're going to learn a lot more about those heretics. Justin introduces us, but Irenaeus, I love his book. You're going to like Irenaeus on this subject.